Hello and welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast. I'm Ian Lobb. Um, Seb's not here because this is one of our new format interview episodes where it's either one or the other of us interviewing uh, a guest. Today's guest is Moo Yu, developer on Ratchet and Clank, Little Big Planet, and the forthcoming Nights and Bikes. Oh uh, yeah, that's correct. Based in the UK, but originally from somewhere else, I'm guessing. Yeah, I'm from Orange County originally. So Orange County, California, and living here in sunny, not very sunny, London. <laughs> yeah, living in London right now. Although I, I actually am not a huge fan of the sun, so so it's kind of perfect for me. That works, doesn't it? <laughs> wow. So you must have hated uh, Orange County. Yeah, it's. I think when it got warm in the summer, I just sort of melted and became lethargic, wasn't really able to do much, or I feel like the temperatures are pretty moderate in London. Yeah, then it's sometimes it's like really nice and you think, wow, this is a great place to live. And then sometimes <laughs> the sun doesn't come out for like two months in a row. And it's a bit depressing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the hardest thing for me to adjust to is uh, when the sun started going down super early. Because I mean, in California, it's pretty much 630 to 730, you know, and somewhere in that range. But when it goes down at four, my brain would just tell me it's time to go to sleep. <laughs> it's three <laughs> sure. in the afternoon. I need to work. Yeah. Okay, so I think if it's okay with you, I want to start in the middle. So let's okay. talk about how you sort of got your break into games and being a developer and that sort of thing. Oh, cool. Yeah. So I think I got my break at an internship at, um, it was a web company called Flipside and they were owned by Vivendi who also owned Blizzard at the time. Um, but it was actually, I was still a student and I was in a graphics programming class and it just so happened that there was a guy sort of in the class that was in the games industry and we had a project that was, I think we had to make uh, an animated scene or something. And I made a scene of um, Cloud Strife, right? Um, just sort of walking on grass. I, I, I say it's Cloud Strife walking on grass. It looked horrible and really <laughs> didn't resemble anything like that. But it, it had the purple and the yellow hair and the green grass. Um, but yeah, so basically, I think that was sort of a calling card. It ended up being a calling card to him to, to let him know that I was into games. He was telling me that he needed to place an intern for the summer. And the, the thing that actually hooked me, because the, the weird thing is I never really thought about working in games, even though I loved games my whole life. Um, but the thing that hooked yep. me was he said, if you get this internship, I'll let you borrow my pass to E3 for a day. Okay. <laughs> so I was like, yes, I will definitely <laughs> apply for that. And yeah, that was, that was probably one of the most exciting moments of, for me, like to sort of see a little bit behind the curtain and yeah, see how E3, the madness that that was. For sure. And then, so um, you say you were on a graphics programming course. What, mm -hmm. what was that like then? Was that writing your own renderers and that sort of thing? Yeah, so that was just sort of, you know, your basic OpenGL calls and how they work and how you build, you know, vector lists and, you know, tweak parameters and that kind of thing and feed it all to the graphics card. Um, so it was very, you know, all that old school fixed function, um, non-programmable graphics pipeline stuff. Um, but yeah, sort of just the basic of basics of like understanding how rasterizing worked and, you know, the, the really, really, really fundamental stuff. Okay. And so you've always come at it from that angle of like um, building things just from C code and from basic like APIs rather than like using pre-existing tools and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I think back then there was direct. Oh, I mean, you know, DirectX and OpenGL. It's not like I was writing, you know, like blitting to the, the hardware. <laughs> for sure, like for that. sure. Um, but yeah, I think the education I had it was at UCLA, um, which is the University of California, Los Angeles. Yeah. And it was, um, I, I think it was pretty low level. I think the first course we did was in C, and then a little bit of C plus plus, and then the next course we did was actually assembly. Right. Um, so they sort of like dug in super deep, and I thought that was really a nice approach to it because 
you sort of learn how to do these things and you learn, oh, this is cool. I can do all this stuff. And then they make you dig down to the lowest level and you're sort of, oh, I understand how this all works. Like sort of from a machine level up, I, I really understand it. Um, and I was actually um, computer science and electrical engineering. And so then you also learn like physically how does, you know, how, how does the, the charge on electrons, you know, create this probabilistic switch state and that kind of stuff. Um, wow. So, okay. So yeah. that's interesting because my, I mean, a lot of the guests on that we have on the show don't come from that sort of background. They're people mm -hmm. that have got into coding through things like Flash or web programming okay. or maybe things like processing. Um, so it's, it, yeah. So, huh, there's lots of questions that I could ask you then <laughs> about like, so, I mean, how much do you think that classical computer science education has helped you? Um, it, it's really hard to say because it's not, I don't think it really helped me dramatically from, um, from a practical perspective. It's one of these things of most of the time you can sort of know the, the highest level thing. And as long as you can rely on the one layer underneath you, you're probably fine. Right. Um, but it's sort of when something goes wrong, you know, you, you can be left in the state of paralysis of, I, well, I don't know how to, how to deal with this. You know, it, this API claimed sure. it would do this for me and it doesn't. And I think you can always go a little bit deeper and a little bit deeper, but the frequency with which you have to dig becomes less and less common. So I think, you know, I think in the modern day, you can probably get by trusting the software. I think software used to be a lot worse. Um, for so, sure. Yeah, but I, think I mean, you're, you're not one of these people that would like insist on writing their own game engine or Oh, no, no, definitely thing. not. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a very practical person. So like, for example, the project we're working on right now, Nights and Bikes is in Unity. Right. Um, just because we're a team of two and I don't really feel like writing all of it from scratch. <laughs> sure. Um, but but I, I think I do always appreciate that theoretical side of things. And I mean, it's not theoretical, it's actually <laughs> very real. Um, but the, the side of things that sort of, you know, to the metal, understanding what's going on, but it's much more from a curiosity perspective that I'd say is helpful one or 2% of the time, rather than me saying, I think there's people that would say, oh no, you have to understand that if you want to be a decent programmer, like, you know, if you're writing gameplay code and you don't know what's going on. I, I, I yeah, I mean, someone like Jonathan Blow, he actually says that all the time on his Twitter account. He says things like, sorry, you're not a real programmer if you can't <laughs> do like this particular like whiteboard puzzle uh, <laughs> it's like i can't do any of those whiteboard puzzles that yeah. you said so <laughs> yeah and i guess you know i, I don't know I, I find that sort of a ridiculous statement but i mean even if it was true you're not a real program it's like i don't think you know especially on you know this, the creative coding podcast it's like we're not trying to be quote-unquote real programmers we're just trying to make you know no. these cr creative endeavors it's the end result just, isn't it i mean exactly. and that's not i mean obviously it depends what type of programmer you are so like if you're a programmer if you're a programmer for like electric cars <laughs> I absolutely don't want you to be doing uh, creative coding that's just about how it looks but uh, exactly yeah <laughs> but yeah if you're if you're just making something like a game it's like the end result is the is the ultimate test really isn't it and absolutely yeah um okay so from there then where where next then after so you worked at Blizzard no no, no I, it was actually just a company that um was owned a weird um, web startup um, called Flipside, and they also own Blizzard. Right. Okay. Sorry. Um, but yeah, so I didn't. I the funny thing is, I lived in Anaheim, uh, which is you know like right next to Blizzard. Yeah. Um, and my whole life, I loved Blizzard games, but weirdly, it just happened to be exactly at the time that I was applying for jobs. I thought, uh, I don't really want to work there right now. <laughs> it's just like, I find it the weirdest thing that I never applied there. But yeah, so so after I worked at Flipside, um, I just did a three month internship there over the summer. Right. 
um, the guy who got me the internship there went to a console games company called Kush. And right. then so he said, why don't you come over here and do a three-month internship here? Um, so I did a three-month internship there. And then when I actually graduated, um, I applied to Insomniac Games. Okay. Um, and they surprisingly hired me. It was one of these really weird situations where, well, firstly, I applied for a UI position, which I thought, well, it's entry level. I've done a bunch of UI. That's the one thing I can actually do. And they gave me like a gameplay programming position. And I was like, well, I, I can't actually do that, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll fake it as best I could. But I think it was, it was kind of weird because it was one of the first moments where, you know, you walk into this office and like, you know, I, I played the first Ratchet and Clank game and you see the magic and how it happens. And it was just so weird. Like I remember walking out of that, that interview saying like, well, there's no way I'm getting that job. And it's really sad because it looked absolutely amazing. Um, yeah. And then so when they called me back, I was just so over the moon. Um, and I spent four years there. Wow. So in those days, was gameplay programming done uh, in like C or was it in like Lua and that sort of language? It was done in C, yeah. So <clears throat> I think the first game I worked on there was um, Ratchet 3, which was C on the gameplay side. And then they had like this crazy, um, they had these like super weird um, VU units on the PS2 that the engine guys dealt with. Um, and every now and then you had to like look over at them a little bit, but I never really had to do any VU programming, luckily. Uh, sorry, what's a VU? VU, it's like, so they had like the main processor in the PS2 and then right. I had these like smaller units. And then like in the PS3, they had a very equivalent one where they had like the, the main core and they had like eight SPUs. Right. So sort of like the way Sony did hardware back then was like you had one main processor and you had these other side processors to do little things. Right. Cool. And so um, gameplay programming, that would be things like programming like the physics and that sort of thing. And Yeah, I think like, so. so. I guess the, the, the insomniac way of ramping you up, and I, I learned this very quickly, is that they have you program a door on your first day. Yeah. Um, and that's nice and easy because it just moves from point A to point B. Second day, oh, like or a, I guess... A sliding door or a swinging yeah, you, door. It's, it's, it's usually like just either... Um, a platform that when you step on moves up or a door that when you walk into a trigger zone opens. Right. You know, something really basic. And it's the kind of thing that in the modern day, you'd never actually have someone write a door because someone will have written a door already and you just use that component and yeah. <laughs> it'd be done. But, you know, I think it was good training exercise to like do something and build your confidence up a little bit. And then I guess the next week they would sort of make you do like a basic um, enemy AI. So, you know, just a character that would follow the character or follow the hero around and try and, you know, melee attack them in one way yeah. or another. Um, and then the third thing they put me on was a boss fight. <laughs> so they sort of just ramp you up into it. And, and, and nice... all of this would have been, were these just tests or was this actual production code? No, then? this was actual production code, yeah. Okay. So And I mean, then, okay, that's, so that's super interesting. So right away you were doing things that made it into the... Oh, absolutely. And yeah. which, I mean... which games did you work on? So I worked on Ratchet and Clank Up Your Arsenal, Ratchet Deadlocked, and then I led um, Ratchet and Clank Tools of Destruction. Awesome. Those so, yeah, were cool fun. games. Um, <laughs> yeah. Which was, I'm trying to think, because I, at that time, I was working um, at an agency called Block where we were doing a lot of the marketing for mm -hmm. Sony Europe. Okay. And we did some promo stuff for like Ratchet and Clank, like mini games and things. Okay. And for, uh, what was the one that was like a driving game? driving game like pretty much all of them had a vehicle segment to them like what's the relationship as well with jack and daxter were those different franchises yeah, they, were, they were totally different and it's it was just weird that i think insomniac and naughty dog always had like a sort of weird relationship where they were always kind of making 
competing games that were very similar. Right. Um, and I guess that sort of branched off when um, Naughty Dog started working on Uncharted and Insomniac started working on Resistance. But yeah, they had like Spyro versus Crash and then right. there was Ratchet and Clank and Jack and Daxter. Sure. Okay. That's where my confusion's coming from. <laughs> yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. So Ratchet and Clank. Awesome. And then uh, how that was all in the States, I'm guessing. Yep. Yeah. And then yeah, how did yeah. you end up over on this side of the waters? <laughs> yeah. So, so after, um, so I was promoted like gameplay lead on Ratchet and Clank: Tools of Destruction, and I kind of got to the point where I I thought I'd worked on enough Ratchet games. Like I I have a, a friend who um, does programming for the government, and you know he's been doing it for nine years. And I told I was talking to him, and he's I was like, you have nine years of experience. You can you know you can move on and do something else. And he said the problem with the job that he had was that it wasn't nine years of experience. It was one year of experience nine times. Right, <laughs> like you, okay. just, you just end up doing the same thing over and over and over and you don't learn anything new. And that sort of sort of kicked me up the, the backside to, to think about, well, how do I do something new and, and different and not just make these ratchet games that I'm, I'm really familiar with? Sure. Um, and uh, Sorry, did you say that you were the team lead by the end of that? Yeah, so I was the gameplay lead um, by that point. And so were there other programmers like that you had to sort of give give orders to and things yeah that was that was weird because like um, how big was the team and and that sort of thing so the weirdest part was that at the beginning the team was two people so i was like the lead of one person which was actually a kind of a nice training so we did all the pre-production and prototyping and built up the code base sure um between the two of us um and then it ended up being probably a team of eight or nine um and i had to hire i think three or four of them um so i think i picked up a team of like three or four and then i had to hire another three or four or something like that and I mean, were you responsible for like managing their time and things like that, or, or were there also producers and project managers doing that stuff? So it was it was a strange. It was like a transitionary period for Insomniac. I think they started having producers, um, but I still was pretty much in charge of their time. Um, but yeah, I mean, we we'd sort of set the deadlines and figure out what we we're doing. But I think we were still trying to figure out where the line between, you know programming management and project management was and it was it was still a little bit fluid at the time but yeah it was i think for the most part it was i would figure out who would start working on what and just hope that people came in on time and or got <laughs> things done on time and when they didn't we'd sort of rejig things or i would you know pick up the bit the bits that fell through the cracks or sure yeah, i mean it was a pretty weird time in that you know it was my first time in sort of a, a management position and I felt like during the day I did like eight hours of management and then like as soon as everyone else went home, I did eight hours of programming. Yeah, I've, I mean, I've been in similar situations really where I had like, you know, I was supposed to be managing people, but mm-hmm. like just all my time was actually taken up by coding and so everyone else was just sort of <laughs> yeah. like, uh, had to, it was, yeah, it's hard to balance those things, I guess. Yeah, I mean, one thing that, that I do look really fondly upon is, like, I, I do meet up with, like, Insomniac fans when they come out to, like, um, London for user testing or stuff like that. And, like, when I hired my team, I actually, because because they took a risk on me and I was straight out of college, they put me in a gameplay position, I kind of did the same thing. And, like, almost all my hires were, you know, relatively inexperienced programmers. Yeah. And a lot of people, I was, you know, a new lead, and a lot of people criticized me for that. They're saying, you need experience on this team, so on and so forth. And I, like... I, I, one, on one hand, I struggled a little bit with hiring people with too much experience because I was, what, 23 at the time? Uh-huh. And so you hire someone who has, you know, eight years more experience than you, it, sometimes it's hard to give them instructions. Um, there's a lot of people that were great about it, but, you know, every now and then I, I'd have an issue here or there. 
right. but yeah, but all those all those you know kids I hired out of high or out of um, college basically are sort of the lead the, the main leaders of Insomniac um, gameplay programming now. That's awesome. And so I just like yeah, I just feel like I did sort of invest in the right in the right places. That's cool. Yeah, it's nice when like you you get to sort of hire someone or or you see someone sort of first start their career and then you see them down the line and they're doing amazing stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I always think that's super inspiring. Yeah, so sorry, sorry. Back to how you ended up um, in London and what. Oh what yeah, you sorry, there. I forgot about that bit. So I decided I should move on, and there was a trend in the states. I think Gears of War had come out, Half Life Two had come out, and Doom Three had come out, and pretty much every studio that I talked to was making a shooter. Um, and I don't really like very violent games. Like even Insomniac was making Resistance, which was a shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just you know was talking to recruiters and just trying to look for what was out there, and I couldn't find anything really fitting and then at gdc they announced um little big planet <laughs> right and i was just like wow that looks amazing and i, I actually i remember when i stressed um, finishing up tools of destruction um i just left that trailer on loop in the background with you know the the go team just playing and just like it just cheered me up and kept me going <laughs> oh, it was all about that go team thing wasn't exactly it? It, was, it was amazing um and funny enough i had a friend who was traveling through europe and had met met them and decided that he was coming over to Media Molecules. So he told them when they come out to E3 that they should chat with me. Yep. Um, and so we had a little bit of, bit of a chat in a hotel at E3. And then they said they flew me out for an interview. And then the rest was sort of history. Amazing. And then what was your, so what was your position at, um, at Media Molecule? At Media Molecule, I was just gameplay programmer. Right. On uh, uh, Little Big Planet little Big 1? Planet. Yep, the first Little Big Planet. First game. So they'd already had some stuff for you to see the trailer, I guess. Yeah, exactly. They, they sort of had... A bunch of stuff that was really cool but they didn't at that point they didn't really know what the full tool set was was going to be for creating levels and they also didn't know what like how to make this coherent longer experience it was it was like a really interesting time because from the outside you know they're so good at presenting things that it always looks like it's completely done um, <laughs> yeah. and i think we're, we're having that similar issue with our kickstarter a lot of people look at it and say like oh the game's done oh, it's, it's like done. well no yeah yeah, I mean, there's an incredible amount of smoke and mirrors that you have to do if yeah. you if like you have to start publicizing your game like a year or or more before mm-hmm. it's finished. Yeah, like it's I guess it's a a, a, diff, a delicate balance, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Um, I I mean personally, I think that like things that are a full cinematics, mm-hmm. like if you remember the Killzone um, yeah. <laughs> E3 demo, yeah. where in the end they the the final game ended up not looking anything yeah exactly. anything close i would say unfortunately to what they presented um as being gameplay which was which was actually a like a target render or whatever made in <laughs> in maya or something yeah exactly yeah i mean i think the thing is that you know back then they had a a lot of playable bits and like all of them looked really nice and i think we're in the same place with nights and bikes actually someone was asking me how much of the trailer that we put out was you know just pre-rendered um, um, fakery and how much was real and it's about you know 80% re- 80 or 85% real yeah um, and, and then I the think, rest yeah. is the rest is like after effects or something yeah I think we have like a cutscene at the beginning and a cutscene at the end and basically those are not in game at all right <laughs> at, at some point I guess you'll have to work out how to do that sort of stuff in game um, kind of well I think they're the kinds of things that would be actual cutscenes in the game as well sure I mean but I mean would you be planning to use video cutscenes though or would you be planning to do 
I think we'd probably like, just do video cutscenes for that kind of stuff. I mean, oh, okay. I, who, who knows for sure? I mean, but yeah. for a PC downloadable or a PS4 downloadable, like, you know, putting a few videos in there isn't going to kill you. And that's sometimes a better option than than trying to recreate sort of exactly. all the features of After Effects that you would need to, to, to get the same effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think like some of some other games that have been kickstarted, like um, I want to say Jenny McClue. Mm-hmm. and uh maybe night in the woods yeah. like they were you know they were like seemed like they were mostly after effects at at the mm, start interesting yeah. i mean I, I don't know for sure but i know like jenny mcclue was done um uh by an animator okay so yeah. it's like you can make amazing looking things and then everyone's like yeah why, why isn't this done and it's like well this is just what it's going to look <laughs> like when we've actually made it yeah and i think it also depends like i think you know both the games you mentioned are very much about like the 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 the, the artwork and the feel and that kind of things and i think yeah. you know it's it's not such a big problem if if what you're promising is sort of a vibe and yeah. you you do that by animation. I think it's a lot more dangerous when you you very much do something that's all about mechanics and that kind of stuff, and you've just faked all the mechanics. Yeah, I mean, also I think it's probably you know both the examples I gave are, are 2D games where mm-hmm. you know the artwork's going to look the same whether it's yeah. coming out of Unity or After Effects, whereas something where you're doing a a render from like Maya that's a totally different thing than rendering yeah. things in real time. I guess exactly. Yeah. Um, okay, so you worked, how long were you at Media Molecule and what was that like as a place to work? Um, I was there, let's see, from 2007 to 2009. So I think a little bit under two years and it was unbelievable. <laughs> it was just amazing. Um, it, I think one of the other reasons I, I left Insomniac was that the teams were getting so big. Yeah. Um, I think the Ratchet team was, you know, maybe 120, maybe more. Um, and then to go to a place like Media Molecule where it was 25 people and the ambitions for the game were so incredibly high, but it, it felt like we could do it. Yeah. Um, it was one of the most incredible, like empowering feelings I've ever had in my life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it, it was one of these things of you just walk into, so they have a thing called Friday feature every Friday you show off like what you've been working on. And I've never been, you know, just had my jaw to the floor for so long and every single week. Like, you just think like, oh, well, you know, someone's going to have like a good week or a bad week. But it was like, it was almost, I, I, I don't want to use the word competition, but it, it felt almost like that. Like, you know, like every week you felt like you had to deliver something amazing because you knew everyone else is going to. Yeah. So it's just sort of like, you're just sort of held to this incredibly high bar and you're always, you know, forced to push yourself, but also forced to like, you know, lean on everyone else's skill to like, to, to get the most out of what you can do. That's cool. Um, and then, so you shipped Little Big Planet? Yep. Yeah, so I shipped Little Big Planet. I did a bunch of the prototyping for Little Big Planet Two because I did so. I did the the switch system in Little Big Planet One, which was sort of like our visual programming language for game logic. Uh, okay, um, and now people made like incredibly complex things with that, right? Yeah, that was it. Was it, uh, we could not believe the things that people were making, <laughs> um, just because just the level of effort and complexity and like mental management like it's it's fair enough like if you're if you're actually coding something like you have a debugger you have you know source control you have autocomplete you have all this you know all this stuff but in that case you yeah. just you you just have this level that you've built physically somehow and it was yeah. just absolutely incredible to see and that and it's it's like wires 
Yep, it's all just up a, different a parts. million wires hanging in a million places. Yeah, I mean, in a way, that sort of preceded Minecraft, didn't it, with the the redstone red things? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think it was it was it was it was a nice little feature to work on, but I think they expanded on that quite a bit in the second game, and so I did a lot of the prototyping of of how could we let you build something really cool and complex without you having to build a giant block of switches, and because there was so much of it that was physical as well, like if you wanted to build an and switch or an or switch in Little League Planet, you actually hooked things up to pistons and then you know <laughs> move things in and out of ranges of circles and stuff yeah. like that. So so yeah, we wanted to to make it so once you sort of understand how that worked you really didn't need to build you know this many pistons for each of your switches i mean and and little big planet still used the same it was still a um, uh, little big planet 2 still used that like a mechanical system or no little big planet 2 actually had what i think i think they ended up calling it microchips or something but it was like sort of a system where you could like open a thing and use these logic gates instead of using like the physical pistons and that kind of thing. Oh, okay. Stuff. I don't know. Have you seen things like scratch, like visual programming have, yeah. things? Yeah. I mean, I guess that, that this was a little bit before that even, right? Uh, I don't, I don't know when scratch is from actually. It's, it's one of those things in my head, like I feel like has always existed. So I, I don't really know. Yeah. I think I it feels like that, that, but I think it's actually really new. Like, oh, okay. I think yeah. it's probably maybe five years old and I oh, think cool. we're going back yeah. further than that here, aren't we? <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah. I think it was two thousand eight or nine when. Why I really like yeah. Scratch is that it it has like so many of the sort of programming constructs that mm -hmm. you know and you use every day in like a normal programming language, but exactly. just in a yeah. simple blocky form. And so, like, I mean, the problem with like Redstone engineering is that you have to be a computer scientist to really understand how it works because yeah. it uses like the very core like physics of of and gates i guess basically exactly. right because like everything yeah, it, on a microchip boils down to being a an and gate right yeah or i guess everything's actually built out of nand gates which is right. weird like an <laughs> inverted and this was just going back to my ee stuff it was just yeah. it was so weird that like the, the core unit is not and i'm like why why this is this makes it so hard because it's like you're trying to put something together and it's like what's well, not this not 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 and oh whatever <laughs> um but yeah that's cool Okay, so Little Big Planet, you ship that. You worked a bit on Little Big. Okay, now actually, let's stay on Little Big Planet for a bit because it's yep. it's such a cool game. Um, yeah. <laughs> how does something like that come together with such a relatively small team, like thirty-ish people? Is not a huge team for a, mm -hmm. a big release like that these days, right? Yeah, I think you you just really have to be really, and I, I think you know it was double constrained because it had to be a tool set that was friendly to. Um, the, the the players rather than just the developers. So you had to make sure that you defined all your building blocks very well and that yep. they all had to be extremely robust and extremely versatile. Like you, you had to do as few building blocks as possible and get so much out of them. And I think that was sort of the core philosophy of of how we we made you know little planet work at all because it was just like we had the logic gates we had the the physical joints and pistons we had emitters um, but we didn't have much else so it just you know there was a small set of things that we used to build all the levels and I think you know a lot of a lot of it was just trying to figure out you know what is this progression how does this all fit together how does the single player match with the community stuff and how do we you know, how do we use the single player to be like a, an inspiration for the rest of it? Um, and I think the thing we, we never realized is how quickly 
the the user generated levels would just be inspiration for each other you know like how quickly a meme would catch on like someone would figure out oh you can build this thing or you can you know there, there's this bug in the game and you can do these things with it and just like <laughs> and then suddenly you know within you know 24 hours there's like 20 or 30 levels that use the same kind of mechanic and they would just sort of share the, these things across um but yeah i think i think a lot of that was well one was just having the most talented team i mean they probably have the the most talented team per individual in the world i mean <laughs> it's it's very i mean i think there's probably other teams in the world that have more output bandwidth um but just in terms of the sheer talent of each individual there it was it was just a marvel um so i think that was you know what part of it was just having the right people there but i think the other thing was just having this philosophy of making sure we're putting in things that do a lot of work um, because if we do if we do little features that are like oh well it only has one use case it's like well people are going to build millions of levels out of this like and if you can only do one thing with it what's really the point mm. yeah and so the whole game is built using its own engine mm-hmm. is that right i'm just yeah, guessing absolutely. here yeah it was and, it, all of that was custom <laughs> yeah and just all built in in c plus plus and all of the gameplay code and everything just c plus plus yep there wasn't any scripting languages built on top of it or anything uh oh there actually was although that was also custom <laughs> yeah um so yeah they had a custom scripting language that was called it was something fish related but i can't remember what it was <laughs> called <laughs> um but yeah they had a, a um a, a fish pun related um um custom scripting engine or yeah scripting language that I think we a lot of the times as a gameplay programmer, um, because you have to recompile when you edit the code, we would actually prototype stuff in the scripting language, but know that we'd have to downcode it to C++ for performance. Right. Um, so if I was like, I think the camera was an example, like I wrote the Little Big Planet camera. Um, I think that was actually the first thing I did when I got there. And um, I wrote it in script just because it was easier to iterate on it and just tweak stuff and figure out what, what did and didn't feel good. Oh, things then, like the movement of it and that sort of stuff. Yeah, because the biggest challenge of the Little Big Planet camera is that it's four players. Yeah. Um, and so you're trying to keep everyone on screen, but it's because it's a physical game, the velocities that you can sort of incur are insane. Um, hmm. So it's it's basically a camera that's trying to keep on screen four things that can be moving at extremely fast speeds, um, but also doesn't feel really jerky. Um, yeah. so it was, it was like, yeah, quite a big challenge to make sure it, it could, it could keep up with you once you got up to speed, but it, you know, it, it, it tried to move as little as possible as is always the case with a platformer camera. Interesting. And so did you get to make like all of the creative decisions behind the camera as well as implementing it? Um, y- yes. And well, yes, I guess it's, it's one of these things of, there wasn't really, you know, creative decisions. Like there weren't these big, like, you know, uh, monumental creative decisions. It wasn't like someone came down and said the camera's doing this or the camera's right. doing this. So there was wasn't just... a ga- there wasn't a game design document saying like the camera always looks ahead of the character by oh, five no, no, meters no. and all that sort of stuff. So you you had to put all that stuff in. Yeah. So and, and what I was think... your strategy? Did you do look ahead? Did you do? Um... Yeah, so I definitely did look ahead. So, you know, we look ahead is it's it's annoying because um with four players, it's like which player do you which look player ahead? are you looking ahead um, of? Yeah. But yeah, so so you sort of, you know, do a lot of like aggregation and you try and like focus on like the character that's leading and that kind of thing. Um yeah. so you we definitely did look ahead so you could sort of predict where where they were gonna go based on where they were going. Um yeah, because you, it, 
it, like even in a four-player game, if you've zoomed out to fit four players on the screen, that's mm-hmm. not going to help the player who's ahead, right? Yeah, exactly. Because they they've got no they've got no view of like what's coming yeah. next. Yeah, and I think there's there's actually times I think Little Big Planet is, does have times where it's it's better because you don't want someone sort of just running ahead and doing all the stuff. You kind of want to stay together a oh, bit. Oh, I see. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah. we did have yeah we did like the look ahead. We did we tried to expand as fast as we could. We we sort of did a lot of like acceleration on the camera so basically if the players are accelerating we can accelerate the camera but if the the players aren't accelerating we shouldn't be speeding up the camera that much um like those kinds of things um and then but eventually we did have to have like an off-screen indicator just to say you know look (laughs) you guys are too far apart someone (laughs) someone is gonna die because unless you can get back on screen um because you can only zoom out so far Um, you have to decide who the person is who's gonna exactly that was to work out who's ahead and have you played yeah. Have you played Spelunky much? I played a little bit, but I haven't played a ton. That's got a, a co-op mode that's mm-hmm. done in a slightly annoying way, where rather than sort of make these decisions, they've just mm-hmm. decided like there's one character who, who oh, is the, the like player one, and basically yeah. everyone else has to just keep up with them. Yeah. That that was actually one of the hardest things. I, I can't remember which we shipped with. We tried so many dif- different iterations. I swear we... Uh, I'm not even sure. I think we ended up shipping with whoever's closest to the next checkpoint, which is not a great heuristic, to be honest. Um, but... <laughs> but I was, mean, what's crazy, was... though, as well, is that that's just one... Um, that's just only... That's only the local multiplayer. You had a whole mm-hmm. other set of problems to solve doing yeah, online, right? Absolutely. And I think... It, I think we did, went down the the path of oh well on different machines you could have diverging cameras, um, but then we started having diverging um, well who's off screen and is is having a countdown to die is <laughs> right that can't be divergent and you can't like split off as two parties so I think we ended up syncing the cameras across. Oh the two, okay, so two that's so you ended up using this as if everyone's looking at the same screen anyway yeah i think so that's interesting i I mean it was many many years ago but i think that's how we ended up yeah i mean because you want to for gameplay reasons you sort of need to keep all of the team together anyway don't you exactly like you couldn't have one person steaming off to the end of the level while one person's yeah exactly you you couldn't have like well you know i i'm playing on a different machine so it's like i'm just going to play on my own like it sort of defeats the purpose of having this um playing and was there some sort of physics genius there to work out the network physics and keep that in sync because like a, something like a platform game especially mm-hmm. one with like rigid bodies and things that's like one of the hardest things that you could ever keep in sync over a network right uh yeah i mean we we basically did deterministic uh, i mean you know custom written physics engine that was deterministic oh, okay. and so we just did like sending inputs across and that kind of thing oh that's cool yeah, yeah. i was um yeah someone from unity was saying things that they'd like or like asking for suggestions and i was like mm-hmm. yeah deterministic physics would actually be amazingly <laughs> yeah. useful yeah yeah and that, that that genius was david smith so yeah we they did have a resident genius physics person although cool. he's also a genius gameplay person so <laughs> cool and so is at medium molecule is that where you met your foam sword uh collaborator uh yeah so yeah rex and i met on little big planet and sorry um, what's his name uh rex uh rex Krell. rex Krell, okay yeah. Yeah, and so he was doing like just, you know, art direction and bits and that kind of stuff. He wasn't the art director on the project, right. but he was doing like, he, he definitely like set a lot of the style for it. And he was doing like the intro video and like a lot of the stickers and a lot of like the more stylistic stuff. But yeah. Right. Okay. And then so, but between doing Nights and Bikes and 
doing Little Big Planet, you've worked on other stuff as well, right? Yeah, it's been a really weird period there. So I sort of got this itch that I wanted to start learning more skills than just programming. Right. Because um, I, I think one of the things that I, I saw as a trend that was happening is that the programming part is getting easier and easier. And I kind of was always afraid that, well, it's going to be the point where everyone's doing programming and you know, if I only have that one skill, I'm going to be pretty limited. So at that time, I wanted to learn sort of all the parts of running a business and all that kind of stuff. And so right. I did like a little Facebook game startup and we released a Facebook game. So I, I delved into Flash <laughs> for the first oh, time. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so yeah, we That's did a little a, yeah. Facebook game. Um, yeah, it's, what, was, it's an interesting what was the conversion. Facebook game called? It was called Monstrosity. Um, oh, okay. And I actually worked with Rex on that, and um, it was basically a game about um, making monsters gigantic. So it was you had like a little monster that was like that sat on your coffee table, right? Um, and you would feed him, and he'd get bigger and bigger, and eventually got too big, and you had to let him outside. And then like once he got too big for that, you had to like um, let him out even further. And so he would just keep destroying things as things went along, and that's just sort of what made them happy so it was all about like creating this monster that would that took joy joy in destroying things and you're just trying to take care of them and trying to like clean them up clean up after them and repair all the things that they've been destroying just so they can have a good time <laughs> right okay and that was was that in the sort of golden age of facebook games like yeah exactly 2010 i think yeah that was super the peak of i mean that was the peak of flash games in general that was when yeah. like flash games just went absolutely yeah crazy because I went to GDC that year and it was just like the hallways were just like Facebook, 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 <laughs> Facebook. It was, it was pretty bizarre. Yeah, it was pretty um, crazy, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and it, yeah, I think one of the other reasons I looked at Facebook games is that I, I kind of had this, I think with Facebook and then I, I actually made mobile games um, later, This the idea that you know, maybe we can make games for everyone and maybe, you know, we can widen this audience and it'll be really cool. And like, we can start making, we can start being pushed to make games that we've never made before. Um, but then like, as, as those, um, sort of spaces matured, it, it felt like, oh no, we're, we're just making different games over and over again, (laughs) instead of, um, you know, being able to just, you know, be, being sort of forced to be innovative and make these creative crazy things yeah i mean i feel like in in facebook games and in mobile probably now mm-hmm. there was just like sort of business guys just <laughs> took over like they worked out a way of like doing it i don't know do, having sort of more um repeatable results or whatever mm-hmm. yeah and yeah those things just got taken over by like if you think about the early days of mobile games there was like it was a really creative space and you know there were all these really interesting new ideas and new sort of ways of interacting with games and things and then by you know where we are now is we've just got all these massive fleet of prey giants yeah exactly Um, and it seems like everything yeah it just it's just sort of hard to make something new and to sort of break out nowadays so. yeah because it's not that the projects it's not that the like neat games aren't out there it's just that it's much harder to sort of um find them and raise awareness for yeah, it exactly. if you've done one yeah yeah and it's not like it's super easy anywhere but yeah it just no yeah it just seems like a very hard space right now yeah i think if you can get on any platform in like the first year that seems to be like yeah <laughs> much... I think that's why everyone's so excited about vr right now yeah exactly but yeah i mean 
I guess there's one difference though is that with mobile phones, like they went from zero to, or sorry, with smartphones, they went from zero to like a very large adoption very quickly. Yeah. So yeah. it's like there were suddenly all these handsets out there and not many games to play on them. So yeah. if you could make a game for mobile phones, that was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, uh, an amazing market. Whereas yeah. the difference with VR, I think, even though I think I do think VR is absolutely amazing the there isn't overnight going to be millions of headsets out there there's going to mm -hmm. be like a couple of hundred thousand yeah so you're not going to just be able to like be well i'm the guy who's made a vr game because also pretty much everyone who owns a vr headset is also like developing stuff <laughs> <laughs> yeah that might be true <laughs> cool so um so facebook wow so this is like a history of video games almost at this point isn't it this <laughs> is yeah, all the, the big history. milestones we've had the consoles we've had yeah. uh facebook and then you and then you did mobile games after that yeah so i did uh indie so i actually got a job at mind candy and i was sort of heading up their mobile team although we only shipped one app um so but i was also working on an indie mobile game on my own which was um called ring fling and it was just this sort of local multiplayer ipad game right um like it was just one of these things of uh I really love local multiplayer games. Like it's just one of these things that I remember when I grew up, the fact that almost all the games I played were local multiplayer meant that whenever I wanted to play video games, my first thought was, how do I get a bunch, bunch of friends over? Or, you know, how do I, how do I go meet up with someone yeah. to do it? Um, and I, I just sort of missed that a little bit. And I played loads of like local multiplayer games with my, um, my fiance and that kind of stuff. So I just loved that, that sort of space of games. Um, and so I just want to make something small and just to also sort of try out, did I think that mobile was the place for me? Um, and so like I made the game and it actually was pretty reviewed pretty well. I, it was weirdly nominated for a few awards and that sort of just shocked me. Awesome. Um, and then, um, but yeah, it, you know, it was one of these things of, I spent so little time on it, but it also made it feel like it was a really hard uphill battle, um, to sort of, to make a mobile game successful, even at that time. And that was, you know, a few years ago now so i just thought well maybe i'll just keep my day job and see if there's another opportunity that comes up later cool and so did you, you said you were at mind candy as well at the same yeah. time yeah um and that was what was that like as a place to work at yeah it was it, it was it was incredible in some sense in that like the energy in that building you know I, I i really do admire michael and you know he he just has this excitement about things and he can you know it, it's almost like that steve jobs um yeah distortion reality feel like you know you, you just get really into it when you start talking to him about he just always idea. has an intense look on his <laughs> eyes all the time yeah, exactly so i think it was just really cool like trying all those ideas but i think the the children's market in mobile as a combination was really hard because mobile's all about free to play which yeah. tends to be about whales which you tend to find not many six-year-old whales <laughs> um <laughs> no. so it was it was just really hard to sort of find the fit there and you know i i, I don't know if it the market's different now because i haven't really been paying attention to it but i think that's you know, as a children's games mobile company, I think that's sort of the the thing we were struggling with of of the free to play model is really hard to pull off with with uh, a child oriented game. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Mind Candy are really just good at like developing like these kids characters and brands and yeah stuff, the characters right? and all that and you know the the number of incredible artists there that would just like just 
create like they had the these moshlings that were in moshi monsters and just it was just like like clockwork you know every week these artists just turn out these incredibly yeah. you know be, you know like really cute but strange uh, uh creatures yeah and there's like hundreds of them so they would be yeah having to come up with new ones exactly. just constantly yeah and then you see the like the the roll the the toys roll off like the 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 toy factories and that kind of stuff and you just sort of see that whole engine moving it was it was really interesting to see from the inside yeah for sure and i i hope that they sort of keep going i know they've had some problems recently yeah. but i hope that they can yeah, keep going because yeah they're uh, they, you know yeah they're good um yeah so after that then well, should we yep. just should we move on to nights and bikes now yeah i mean basically after that is nights and bikes i did okay. some freelance work um but I, I didn't really do anything major since mind candy until now yeah i was sat opposite you yep randomly <laughs> about a couple of years ago when i was um when we were both doing some stuff for something else. Yep. Um, but anyway, yeah, so let's go on to F- Foam Sword and Knights and Bikes and how all that came about. Yep. Um, yeah, do you want to just... Yeah, so I, I think, you know, I'd, I'd always been in touch with Rex. We we meet up all the time and that kind of stuff. And um, there was one point at which he sort of pitched this idea to me, which was, you know, a, a Goonies-inspired video game and what, what would it be like and how do we sort of capture that feeling of being in a band of kids and going on an adventure and that kind yeah. of thing. Um, and it, it's it's kind of weird because, you know, it's like you talk about game ideas all the time and it's, you, you have a few pints and you're like, ah, we should make this game. <laughs> um, but it was sort of an idea that I think really stuck with me and I think probably stuck with him. And it's sort of this really weird curve in that if I think about what we were originally excited about um, and what we're doing now, they're so different. But I think, you know, there there is like a a continuity that brings them together. Um, And it probably was that core idea of like, you know, a game about, you know, a group of kids that go on an adventure. Um, And so, you know, we just were bouncing ideas back and forth. I was doing freelance work. He was working at Media Molecule on Tearaway. and just, you know, every now and then, if we saw each other, we'd chat about it or that kind of thing. And I think when he finished um, Tearaway Unfolded, um, we sort of weirdly were at a point where we're like, oh, we kind of actually know what we want to make here. Let's start prototyping and building some levels and building these characters and that kind of thing. And so we very quickly, you know, started putting together as much as we could and iterating and I think... You know, just trying to trying to get everything up to the standard that um, we were re- ready to show the world, um, and so I think we went through you know many many iterations, but very quickly. I think that's one of the great things about um, having such a small team. It's on a team of two people, and you know we're working with Unity, and you can just get something up and running so quickly. Um, and it, it's kind of funny because we ended up building like I think we have a lot more systems built than a lot of other projects at this time. Like you know we have our save game system, we have a converse like a dialogue system, and like you know asset or text management and all that kind of stuff. And yeah, that that um, is quite far through actually. Yeah, and like I built like a very similar switch system to the one I built in Little Big Planet, and like all that kind of stuff. But obviously not visual wires. Um, <laughs> um, but yeah, <laughs> sure. so so yeah, we we just did a bunch of that kind of stuff, and then. I think we just kept working at it and working at it, and we finally got to a point where we thought, well, I think this is starting to look and feel like like the thing we want to show people. And and more importantly, it's like we started getting the confidence that we can actually deliver this thing that we, we've been chatting about, you know, like this idea that we had, we can actually probably deliver it. Um, 
And, you know, because we've built enough of these prototypes that it's like, oh, this combat bit it feels really good oh actually making uh, a bike work in um in 32 directions using a 2d sprite actually works oh and then you can use more you know secondary partials to get like the handlebars turning and then you can do these trails and you know like all that kind of stuff like i think when you have an idea it's really easy to get excited and just promise people like oh we're gonna make this thing but i think we're a lot more cautious than that we're like well each of the really important parts of this game, like we want to make sure it looks and feels right now. Yeah. And so, so then we, in, in a way that we feel like, oh, well, we can expand on this and finish the rest of it. And you know, how long were you making these prototypes for, like before you started the, the Kickstarter campaign? Four months, five months, right. something like that. Yeah. I mean, we also are both also working freelance jobs. Yeah. Um, so it's like, you know, four or five months part-time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean... But for ideas that go back like even further than that, right? Yeah. And I, I think the ideas were were a really interesting pro- part of the process because I think if we we hadn't done that sort of bouncing back and forth on ideas, we we would have prototyped a lot, a, a lot wider array of things. Yeah. Where I think we were sort of at the point of like, we kind of have this world and this story um, and this feel that we want to get across. How do we do that? Where I feel like if you if we started prototyping immediately, it would have been like, oh, what kind of mechanics do we want? Is this an RTS? Is this blah, blah? You know, it's just like, I think we sort of had enough conversations and I think we've had enough experience that you can sort of rule out a bunch of, of things just sort of thinking about them and talking about them. Um, and we kind of knew, well, here's this thing that we're trying to build and let's just start building it. Yeah, I wonder if I can play in the trailer music or something just to get a, give a sense of the vibe of the game. Cause yeah, definitely. Yeah, it I does look definitely. it does look awesome from the trailer. Like, yeah, um, yeah and, and I think it looks amazing. Is, You're the doing music is amazing from um, Daniel Pemberton. Okay, is it, will we know him from other games and stuff? Or? So he worked on with us on Little Big Planet, but he's actually recently more of like a, a Hollywood sound uh, composer. So he wow. did the soundtrack for Steve Jobs and Man from Uncle and no that way. kind of stuff. Yeah. Amazing, so yeah, he's incredible. Super, because yeah, it's an amazing, um, amazing soundtrack. Yeah, and it's been it, stuck in my head from the moment <laughs> he composed it. <laughs> yeah, and the game looks awesome. So at the time that we release this podcast, uh, the Kickstarter that you guys are doing will still be on. Yep. Um, although it won't have a huge amount of time left, so we won't know whether it's met its goal or not. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, we'll see. But definitely head over to the Kickstarter and, and check out the trailer and everything because it does look absolutely amazing. Yep. Um, awesome. If we could, talk, so what's the kick? Do you know the URL for the Kickstarter? Um, if you just go to knightsandbikes.com, there so we just go. knightsandbikes.com. And yeah, that's knights as you. in knights in armor, right? Yeah, knights in armor rather than the, the time of day. Yeah. And the logo is very clever, isn't it? Because it's a, it's like a bike, handlebars, and front wheel. Yeah, exactly. It makes I, I think a sword that, shape. That was one of the, so, so one of the first images that made it clear of just like because you know we knew we were going to go on adventure with kids we didn't know if it was going to be medieval or you know arthurian or anything like that and and then that was the image that sort of just like locked everything in place and like okay we know what we're making now um he he sort of drew that sword as like sort of like a big sword of damocles hanging over an island um and i was just like yep yep i know what this game is now that's cool. Um, and so, okay, so let's talk a bit about the game. So, yep. uh, what's the so what's the story for the game, and then what's the sort of gameplay style? So yeah, the the setup for the story is basically that you it takes place on this island called um, Penferzi, and the island is sort of you know one of these great mythical legendary islands. Um, but recently, people don't really believe in it, and you know the tourism has all fallen off, and 
you know, I think the, the Islanders have lost their confidence and they don't really know what's going to happen. It's um, um, set in Cornwall, right? Yep, set in Cornwall. So it's a bit like, sort of a bit like Tintagel in Cornwall where, yeah. where like, uh, King Arthur's castle is yep. supposed to be and there's a lot of, like, little tourist shops all yep. based around, like, yeah. Arthurian legends and things. Exactly. Yeah, so it's got that kind of vibe to it. Um, and the story's sort of about, you know people not believing in this thing and these two girls that sort of want to go investigate the past for different reasons. So one of them, you know, just loves these legends and like her, her favorite video game is based on the hero of legend. Um, and she just, you know, she, she's so excited about her game and she hates the fact that people don't believe in this and she wants to prove it to be true. Um, and you know, the other side of it is that she wants to prove it to be true because if it's true, then the tourism comes back and she doesn't lose her home. So, you know, there's, there's that part of it. Right. So it's very much that Goonies plot line of like the kids have to say, yeah, their exactly. Home type. Thing. Yeah, they have to save the adults from the thing. And then the, the other character, um, Nessa, so Demelza's the, the islander. Nessa's sort of a mainlander um, who, who's always struggled to fit in places. You know, she's, she's an orphan. She doesn't know what her past is. And because of that, she's always struggled to find her identity. And she, she sort of finds a connection between this, this little pendant that she was left with when she was a baby um, and the island. And she wants to investigate the past to see if she can sort of finally figure out who she is. Cool. Um, so, so you're getting sort of into like, the, like the hero's journey and all that type of yeah, exactly. Yeah, stuff. I mean, so yeah, so I think that's sort of the setup, and I guess the only other bit of the, the story setup is that um, once they start going to try and find the truth, they they unleash these spirits from the past, which is kind of convenient because if you're trying to find what really happened in the past, the the spirits of the past might be able to help you. Um, but they're also possessing all the islanders and making them do crazy things, and you know, <laughs> causing all kinds of havoc. So they need to stop that as well. Okay, so we're definitely in sort of like a, is it magical realism or something? Is that the this yeah, kind I, of thing where it's like so. it's set in the like modern day normal world except that there's like magic things all around yeah i mean the, the way we kind of think about it is that it's sort of it's from the perspective of a child and it's all the things that are possible from that perspective you yeah. know it's like it's 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 how a child could see the world and be like yeah that's definitely that's definitely what happened and there's you know these these spirits that came from the past and you know that then this you know whatever this appeared and whatever you know like i think it's it's that kind of feeling of like when you when you take things from the perspective of a child, like there's so much more that's possible, but yeah. there's also so much that they don't understand yet. Yeah, yeah, amazing. And then gameplay wise, what's the sort of what's the genre there? And, and so yeah, the the gameplay. I think there's three major components. One is exploration. Um, one is um, the sort of the idea of interacting with NPCs and Islanders and that kind of stuff. Um, and the, the third one is um, action RPG style combat. Um, so I think the, the exploration is pretty self-explanatory. It's all about like you, you've got your bikes and you go on these little mini adventures and quests for the Islanders and you bring back treasure um, you know, and it's tre like kids' treasures, like, you know, I think our examples were like owl pellets and that kind of thing. Um, but you trade those with the islanders and they'll help you upgrade your bike, which lets you get to more parts of the island. And it's all about, you know, just start try trying to tell the story of an island that sort of had its prime and then sort of has sort of fallen. And so it's sort of like the inverse of rings of a tree. It's just like as you go further out, you sort of get further and further into the past of the island. Um, so that's the exploration bit. There's the dealing with NPCs and um, the islanders. So much of the islanders go missing because they've been possessed by evil spirits. So you have to basically 
go and rescue them. And so we wanted to make sure that it wasn't just like, oh, NPCs give you quests and you do this fetch quest and you get this many points, blah, 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 blah. So it's all about like building this relationship with the islanders. So it's all, um, you know, there's a, a big um, harbor where all the shops are. And when you start, like the islanders don't like you and the, all the shops are closed because they don't want to help you. Um, but sort of as you win them over and do favors for them, one, like they're more friendly towards you, so they're going to open your open their shops um, to sort of help you upgrade your your abilities. But more importantly, like it just start the, this part of the city or this part of the island starts coming back to life, and like the islanders start focusing on the abilities that they have. That you know, I, I think there's a little element of the islanders lost lost their confidence because none of the tourists are coming anymore, and I feel like you know it, it's sort of building back the island in like a financial sense, but also building back the island in terms of the islanders and their confidence in their culture and that kind of thing. Um, and then the third part is uh, the combat bit, which is sort of, you know, action, RPG, co local co-op gameplay. So um, that's like hacking and slashing and... Yeah, hacking and slashing. I mean, the two weapons that we showed in um, the trailer were the Frisbee for Nessa and the Power Glove for Demelza. Oh, actually, her wellies and the power glove. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, I, it's very important for us that it's like it is from a kid's perspective. Like, you know, they're not like getting, you know, this, you know, axe of the the bear or whatever. It's like, right. you know, it's, it's the kinds of things that they would actually, you know, use to fight. Um, and, you know, there's always a bit of imagination there. But I think the core gameplay there is it's not it's not one of these like super hard twitch you know, Dark Souls style games. It's much right. more about you've got these two girls and they each have certain sets of abilities which sort of have a bearing on what their personalities are and how do you make how do you work together to sort of solve the the, the puzzles that each each enemy type is. And can you play as either character or does like player one have to be always one character? Um, we, we've been back and forth on that, so I'm not super sure which way it's going to end up. Like I think... What I happens think... if you're playing it single player? Is it does the other character just not there or oh, no, no. If, if you're playing single player like all the other characters ai so there's other two other members of your party one oh, of okay. which is a goose and one <laughs> of which is the um decapitated head of of an old knight <laughs> um, <laughs> so so those two are, are probably always going to be controlled by ai and so if you're playing one player then then the other girl will also be controlled by ai okay right and then you're you undecided whether how yeah you whether handle... you can switch back and forth it's a yeah. tricky one, isn't it? Like we've got a similar thing in the game that um, I'm working on with Amanda, and because basically, if you want to have two characters as characters, mm -hmm. and them to be able to have dialogue beats at the right time and stuff, it's like yeah. you sort of need to not make one of them playable at certain points, and it becomes like. Yeah, exactly. I think there's there's definitely. I mean, I think it's one of those things of it'd be great if we could make it work. But, you know, at this point, we're too early to know if we can actually make it work for, for all the bits and pieces. For sure. So are you having to build out the whole island as like an open world or is it going to be sort of instanced into into little dungeons? Uh, I don't think, I, I doubt we'll build it as a big open world. I think I think it'll, we'll, we'll make sure that it feels like one one big place but i probably imagine there will be you know you know transitions where you're like oh i go from this to this or like i walk through this gate and it's different like i mean that's just sort of a gut thing i don't the implementation details of that are still a bit <laughs> yeah because at the moment you've got like a set of sort of gameplay like prototypes that don't jo join up into an actual game yeah, the funny thing is they do currently join up but i don't know if they will in the, in the end oh okay <laughs> yeah 
okay. And then, uh, oh, sorry, what was I going to ask you next? I'm drawing blanks now. Um, yeah, so you're building it in Unity? Mm-hmm, yep. Uh, using the latest version, you're on 5? Yeah, we're on 5.3 something something. Yeah. Are you Have you been updating it as new versions get released? Because they just seem to be coming out like constantly now. Yeah, I mean, we, we I think we update every now and then. Like, I don't think we're we're too focused on being on the bleeding edge. There's no like features we're waiting on or anything like that. No, but you're not like letting it slip a few versions. No, not definitely not intentionally. I think sometimes we just don't update because yeah, we haven't gotten around to it. But yeah, like I mean, I don't know. Like it, four to did you start this project in four or did it start in five? It started. Oh, it did start in four actually. Yeah, it started four, in four to five was a bit of a jump because they changed some of the APIs. But yeah, there was there were a few changes, but it wasn't too bad really. Like it's the only stuff that really caught me off guard was they they made a few shader changes that made me rewrite a few of the shaders that I had written. But it okay. wasn't a big deal. So okay, so you're writing some of your own shaders for this. Yeah. What what sort of effects is is that to achieve that you can't do with just the default things? Um, so the, the, the lighting model that we want to use for 2d stuff, because we're doing like this 2d, 3d combination thing, um, the way the lighting works on it is just a bit too, too sharp for what we the look that we're going for. So I had to write like a different lighting model for it. That's a little bit softer. Right. Um, so that was like one big thing, but also we have like loads of screen post effects stuff as well. Um, so like we've got the vignette, which is very different from the vignette that they provide. Um, we have all that, you know, like lookup table color correction, but we also have blending between it and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it's just little bits and pieces. I don't. Cool. And that's all in service of like creating a, a particular like visual. Exactly. Yeah, and I think they're all things that like are concepts that exist in Unity, but you know, every now and then it's just like it doesn't do exactly what you want and like we, we do want to get this game like exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it's like if you can write some of that stuff yourself, there's things you can do. Like I was um I was listening to a thing that um about Firewatch mm-hmm. and one of the main things they did was they wrote a fog system where the color of the fog changes based on uh, the distance. It's like a gradient so that yeah. then like things that are fogged out that are like ten meters away are like green. Oh, and then cool. 20 meters away is like yellow or, or whatever the artist could yep. just could just yeah. tweak and put in as many like control points as they wanted to yep. get like a really nice color grading and that's how it all looks so beautiful got it yeah and then like it gives that sort of like that nice sunset effect on everything yeah right? and yeah. then i was looking at my thing and i was like oh i'm just using the built-in stuff and i can't do that <laughs> like i just yeah. have to pick one color yeah, so, I mean, we we always do start with the built-in stuff, like because we're a team of two, we don't really have time to rewrite stuff. But I think, you know, when whenever we get to a point of like, oh well, you know, we're we we're not happy showing it at this thing, so what can we do to make it so that we would be happy to show it to other people? Hmm. Yeah, and then so what, uh, for animation, what are you using for that? So we're using quite a few different things. So we're using Spine for the Yay. character animations. Good old Spine. Yeah, good old Spine. And they just did a big um, uh, version update. So we're we're adjusting to that right now. Right. <laughs> that, yeah, because um, they, they the Unity, like Spine is very much like a cross-platform thing. Yeah. And the Unity plugin maybe isn't their top yeah. priority. Yeah, I mean, they, they've got the Unity plugin now. So we're... we're, we're putting all that stuff in but they've changed sort of how a handful of things work so we might have to refix up some animations um right. but we're also there's also a ton of hand-drawn animation so it's just like hand-drawn frame animation yeah and we mix those two and obviously we mix particle effects as well do you um, use um do you use 2d toolkit at all no we don't have, what uh do you use the built-in sprite stuff 
uh yeah we use built-in sprites if you wanted to do just like a simple animation of like just flicking between like some built-in sprites like yep you would just be using the built-in stuff well we've just written our own components you've got your own little thing that can do like a frame-by-frame animation exactly yeah because so we there's like this effect that um that Rex really likes, which is, I guess he calls it the line boil effect. It's sort of like that effect you get when you've drawn each frame. And so where things don't match up exactly perfectly. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of like, you know, how how that works and, you know, like the order that you have to play the frames, that kind of stuff. So right. yeah, we just wrote some custom stuff there. Okay. Yeah. For, for lazy people like me, uh, <laughs> 2D toolkit, I definitely recommend it for that sort of stuff. Cool. <laughs> um, yeah. Because I remember reading like, I was reading like something Alec Alec how how mm-hmm. I can never say his name Alec Hawaka, the infinite <laughs> ammo guy who's doing um, Night in the Woods. Oh, Alec and he Hawker, was yeah. like he wrote this he wrote like a thing that could render vector graphics so that he mm-hmm. could do the houses. Okay. And oh I yeah, like, I do remember. Oh that. yeah, in two D toolkit, there's totally a thing that lets you like dice an image. Uh huh. Um, it's really cool. So what it does is you give it a big image because mm-hmm. obviously like if you've got like a house that would be the equivalent of like 4,000 by 4,000 pixels, yep. um, that's you can't just drop that in as one yeah, bitmap because yeah. you're pretty soon going to run out of like graphics memory. Yep. So yeah, what you can do in 2D Toolkit is you give it an image like that and it chops it into sections and any two sections are the same. Okay. It can just reuse the same one more, oh, nice. more than yeah. once. And so what you can do is that if you've got an image that uses a lot of flat graphics, you mm-hmm. drop it into that and it can like make a huge 2000 by 2000 thing yep. down into something really small so oh that's really cool actually yeah t- i mean 2d yeah. toolkit i just love it i just <laughs> can't get enough it's, yeah. it's got so many of the like missing features of of uh unity, unity. 2d yeah. basically yeah yeah and i guess the other thing we do a bunch of procedural meshes in places like i you probably wouldn't spot them unless you were looking for them but yeah we do like you know dynamic procedural meshes when we need to Cool. And you're you're doing the thing where it's 3D and then 2D sprites. Yeah, so I think the sort of the there's some 3D models in there, but there's also a lot of um billboarded 2D sprites. Yeah. And have you got them just sat in the scene? Are they like tilted back from the camera or yeah, something? Yeah, they're tilted back. Yeah. That's a great technique. I've seen like a whole bunch of games using that recently. It seems to be yeah. like quite effective for yeah there's definitely the nightmares that come with it like er- <laughs> well, yeah so what are the what are the problems with using that so i'll just try and explain it to the listeners yeah. you basically yeah, so- imagine you've got a camera pointing down at 45 degrees onto a 3d floor mm-hmm. the character sprites are then also tilted 45 degrees say yeah so um, yeah i mean so the, that they the look nightmares flat are- on from that camera yeah, the nightmares are basically anytime you want to do anything collision-wise, <laughs> um, because all your characters are rocked back. But like, if you want to make some a visual thing match with a a physical thing, like because all the physical things are still this orthographic world, so it's like the the capsule collider for this character is still straight up. You don't tilt that forty-five degrees. No, and so you have to blend all this stuff in between them and be like, well. You know, I'm tracking this in orthographic space, and that's going to hit this point in orthographic space. But because that the object that it hit is based here and you know tilted, I need to project that into that space and then spawn the particle effect there. Like, there's just a bunch of like little conversions you have to do here and there. But every now and then, you have to be like, okay, do I want to go up in orthographic space or in projected space? And it's just like, you just have to think about it um, and figure it out for each thing that you do. Yeah. 
Yeah, I've done a few experiments with that style. I mean, the the dumping ground game that I did at something else did mm -hmm. use it was two D sprites in a yep. in a three D world, but yeah. it didn't use that sort of tipping over perspective. Uh, got it. Yeah, I've I've done some experiments with it. I mean, w one of the things I found was that you end up with a lot of different like vanishing points for perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> that and that can be sometimes it looks fine and sometimes it can be a headache. Yeah, exactly. Like there's definitely times where stuff doesn't line up or or it's like the times that uh, a lean back sprite interacts with a 3D mesh because the 3D mesh is like we did an experiment where we leaned those back as well, but it just looked super weird. <laughs> um, <laughs> so we ended up leaving the 3D meshes as they are. And there's definitely times where it's just like, well, because this one's leaned back and the 3D mesh isn't, you clip into this. And yeah, there's those kinds of situations. But I think they're all usually solvable. Yeah. I mean, the good thing about like a style like you're doing is that it, there's a certain amount of forgiveness, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's like a hand-drawn style. Yeah, exactly. That like you wouldn't get if you were trying to do something that was like more realistic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think there's definitely a lot of corners that you can cut and be very clever about things, and it just sort of every now and then you get in a situation where it's like, nope, you have to do the, that the hard way. So, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> For sure. So, okay, so. You're doing it Unity Five something, spine animations plus a load of hand drawn animations mm -hmm. and your own animation editor. Yep. And then are you using like the Unity as a as the level editor? Yep, yeah, we're building everything just in Unity scenes. Although, yeah, we've we've built a dynamic like scene section loading and unloading thing, but I don't know if we'll end up using it or not. Would that be to like trying to stream Stuff yeah, in. so it was like a streaming solution for when I was considering trying to just make it one big world, but it actually doesn't suit a lot of the things that we're going for, so we might just dump it. <laughs> sure. And then you're so you've you've announced for you're aiming for PC and Mac and Linux or just PC and Mac? PC, Mac, Linux and PS4. And PS4, awesome. Yeah. So how did the PS4 thing uh, come about? Um, it didn't really come about. So, you know, we, we just basically went to Sony and said, we want to bring a PS4. They said, cool. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they're yes. not, they're not giving you any money or anything. You no, have to... no, we don't, we haven't signed any contracts with them or anything. I, I mean, see. basically we thought we've, I mean, you know, we love our PS4s. We've developed for Sony platforms for so much. We've got, you know, a huge fan base on Sony platforms. Yeah. It, it seems crazy for us to not want to bring it there. So yeah, we just had to make sure that, you know, we got all our, our ducks in a row and signed up as Sony developers and that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's cool. And then you they, you can just get, like, hire a dev kit off them or something. Is that right? Yeah, you can. I, th I think you can, like, um, I guess, get loaners maybe or that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that, so that's cool. So, um, yeah, should we wrap it up there? Because it's getting quite late, isn't it? Yeah, that's... <laughs> Thank that's you so much, yeah. Ami, for, yeah, for talking to us. Yeah, loads of fun. Um, it's been really, really interesting. You've worked on some absolutely amazing games that I'm huge fans of, so that's... Thank you. Well done on those achievements. <laughs> and good luck with uh, Knights and Bikes. Right, thank you very much. Foam Store Games. You can, it's on Kickstarter. Yep. And uh, I guess for me, um, yeah, so thank you for listening to the show and uh, I'll be back with Seb next week, I guess. Thank you so much. Thanks again, Moo. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Creative Coding Podcast. All our episodes are made possible by the generosity of our Patreon supporters. You can find the link to our Patreon by visiting ccpod.co or you can go to patreon.com slash creativecoding. 
If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, that helps other people find the show. And why not subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you don't miss an episode. <laughs>